Um, Heavenly Father, we, uh, man, we learned a lot about love this week. And so, Father, what else do you want us to know? Um, I pray that every woman walks out of here today with one piece uh, of something special that brings them closer to you and helps them understand a little bit more about how much you love us. Sometimes we get so confused, God, and we ask your forgiveness when we listen to lies and we listen to the world and we listen to the world's definition of what love is. Um, but you are specific and clear, and you sent your son to show us how to love. And so, God, I pray today that we can take this picture of Jesus living out love, and we can walk out and take it with us into Flower Mound, Texas. Um, thank you, Father, that you loved us so much that you trust us with this new commandment to love one another. My God, um, show us how to do it, and um, be with us in this moment, in this time, and help us just quiet the noise for just like 40 minutes, Lord and be present. And it's in your son's name that we pray every time. Amen. Well, I am super impressed. I'm not kidding. I just really thought there's going to be five of us here, but it'll be the five that are supposed to be here, and we'll take off our shoes and just hang out in a little circle and drink coffee. But I'm really glad y'all are here. Um, there's a lot to talk about today, and I hope you had a great discussion in your group because, man, as, as heavy as this week is, one, one of our small group leaders, it was funny, she said, I opened up to my homework and it said the last week, and I was like, wow, that went fast. I'm like, no, not your last week, sister. Jesus' ministry on earth last week. But what a heavy, a heavy um, thing to think about, right? The last week our Savior was on the earth ministering to us in flesh. Heavy. But also at the same time, beautiful, because it was all about love this week, wasn't it? All about love. And so we're going to look closely at the idea of love, the love that Jesus comes to show us how to do. Um, interestingly, whenever I was thinking about this, I, I read, I was reading an article, and this guy said that he went and was looking at all the topics of books on Amazon, right? Like there's gazillions and zillions of books, right? And what was interesting is like if you go look up um, some of the top um, titles of, of things, of topics, of what people go look for books about, there's like 900,000 books on heaven. There's like, um, there's like 600,000 books on, um, on, about God. And then there's like 800 and something thousand books about money, right? But you know, there's over a million books with the word love in the title. There's so much that we want to know about love, right? We crave it. No matter what you believe, what you think you believe, what you say you believe, or who you follow, there is something built in you that craves love. It's just a thing. I know so many people that, that aren't claim to be believers in Jesus, but they would certainly say that they love others and they love people and that they want to feel love, right? So it's a thing that we're built wanting more of. John MacArthur says this, as people, we long for love, for someone to value us more than anything else. We long for faith, for something to believe in, and we long for hope. Give me something to know that things are going to get better, don't we? We long for those things. And so when we see Jesus hunkering down here at the end of his earthly ministry, we start to see him talk about love. You know, the, the word love in the Bible, um, the root word love is used over 500 times from Genesis to Revelation. That's the beginning of the book to the end of the book. That's a lot of times. In the book of John, in the first 12 chapters, he uses it 12 times. But this is what I found really fascinating. 
in chapters 13 through 21 of John. And that's where we begin to see him just hanging out with his people, just his posse, just his 12, just the close ones. And he really, really, really is focusing on preparing them and loving them well for what was to come. You know how many times in the chapter 13 through 21 he uses the word love? 45 times. 45 times. 1 through 12, he uses it 12 times. He repeatedly over and over is sharing. These are the last hours of his life. And these words are not to be missed. He talks in a in, in John 12 and 13, he uses the word, like in the Greek, which you all know, right? Because we all memorized everything. I mean, my Bible's in Greek. I don't know about yours, right? Yeah, no, no. Google, Google Greek. Um, the word love in, in the Greek, which is what most of the New Testament originated in, the Greek um, language, when, when it was written, there's, there was four translations for the word love um, in Greek. The one he uses here is agape love. And a lot of you have heard it. You may have a tattoo. I, I don't know. Um, but I, I needed to understand what that meant because I've heard it, I've seen it, and I just didn't understand exactly what it meant. Here's the thing. Agape love is a love that sacrifices. Agape love is a love that sacrifices for others, and Jesus is very clear that that's the kind of love he's talking about. Now, the thing about agape love is it's an act of will. It's, it's not just a feeling. And we, in 2018, get that messed up sometimes, don't we? Sometimes we think love is this feeling, it's this attraction, or it's this affection but it's not. It's a choice. It's a decision. It's a conscious choice you make. Agape love is also this. It's a commitment to be permanent. It's not a temporary thing. And when I was kind of working through that, I'm like, oh, I understand. Like, what does that even mean? What do you mean? Um, affection, love. It kind of seems like it all goes together, right? Well, consider this. Um, I, was, I was snooping around and looking at the word affection, and I found this interesting quote from a it's, 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 like a, it's like from a marketing review, like a newsletter that was written back in the 90s to, to people in the world of advertising and marketing. And it says this. It, this is just a couple sentences in this one article. Why do toy makers watch the divorce rate? Well, when it rises, so do the toy sales. Because according to analyzers, there are four parents and usually about eight grandparents that tend to compete for the child's affection. So they buy toys. Now... I'm not saying those parents don't love that kiddo, but I'm just saying, what are they trying to buy? They're not trying to buy love. They're looking for affection. And, and we get so confused sometimes because we think that emotion or like, you know, you think about um, true love, you know, when you first fall in love or whatever. There's that spark, right? That's attraction. But love is a choice. It's a decision. And so that's when we're talking about love here. Remember that. Jesus isn't talking about temporary things. He's talking about a permanent decision, a choice, often a choice that's very, very difficult. Amen? There are people, none in this room, because we're all lovely, that are hard to love. That are hard to love. Um, the interesting thing is we move into today's lesson. I want you to consider something. Love is not a one-sided thing. It's not one side. It's not just about you giving love. It's also about receiving it, right? And in this lesson this week, we saw a lot of receiving, didn't we? I, I, a few years ago, when my kids were small, when I read every parent, parenting book there was on the entire planet, I read this one book, and I can't remember who it was, otherwise I'd tell you. If you're a parent of young children, I'll try to scrape it up. But she gave this great example. She was talking about how when one of your kiddos is kind of the antagonist and always arguing with the other one, like you're trying to teach the other one, like, look, you are, you are getting entangled in this as well, and it's a two-sided street. Like you're both doing this thing. 
And so her solution, don't do it in the rain, as Lindsay said, wouldn't work out well. Is she said, you take those little kids and you take them outside and you give one of them a ball. And the other one stand over here and kind, maybe a softball, perhaps a real soft one, um, underhand. You just kind of say, okay, let's play catch. You guys throw, throw it back and forth. And so they stand out there and they throw the ball back and forth. And then I walk over to Maya, my little one, and I say, all right, now you just walk away. And he throws the ball. And she just walks away, and I'm like, great parenting moment, right? I'm like, see, it's just like that with arguing. Like, you, you think it's all his fault. She thinks it's all your fault, but you guys are playing catch, and it's back and forth. You know, and I'm like, yay, yay me. Bring him inside, give him some sugar, and then they start fighting again. And it just, I don't know. But I was thinking about that example when I thought about love. And you know why? Somebody's got somebody's to give, and somebody's got to receive. And if we think that love is only about pouring out and then we don't realize that part of loving people well is receiving, then we're, we're just dropping the ball and walking away. Love is a two-way street. And Jesus tells us that. Like in, that's what's so cool about, about 12 and 13 is this. He tells us in 13, and we're going to go there, about this new commandment. So he tells us about love, but what does he do in 12 and 13? He shows us how to love. He shows us how to receive, and he shows us how to serve and love with servant love. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look, first of all, at extravagant love in chapter 12, and we're going to see how um, Mary pours out love to him, and he receives. And then in chapter 13, we're going to look at that servant love where Jesus stoops down on the ground and cleans the black fuzzies out of people's toes. Right, Lindsay? Yeah, people listening online are going to be like, I do not know what that was. I'm sorry. And thirdly, we're going to talk about this new commandment that he talks about that didn't, let's be clear, it didn't seem too new, did it? I was kind of like, I'm pretty sure I've heard that before. Well, we're going to talk about that. Why is it new? So if you would, if you haven't already, open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12. And let's take a look at, um, at this extravagant love. Well, John chapter 12, I'm going to read the first few verses, and then we're just going to kind of walk through some of the specifics. I know you talked about it in homework and you talked about it in your group, but there's a couple of things I want to point out before we move on that, that show us how to love from a perspective of Jesus. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, go like this. Six days before Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him there, and Martha served, and like Martha do, doesn't she? She serves all the time. Any Marthas? Yeah, that's what I thought. Y'all are all like, the Marthas in the room are like, wonder what she served. Was there a menu? Was it like, I don't know, was it potluck? I don't even know. Okay. So anyway, Martha, back to Martha. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table, with him at the table. Verse 3, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with fragrance of perfume. But Judas Iscariot was one of the disciples. He was about to betray him, Jesus. He said this, verse 5, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor. You like how John wanted to make sure we knew that? Not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Verse 7, Jesus said, oh, I love this, underline this. Leave her alone. 
so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. It's important when we look at this story to remember they had just come from Ephraim. And look in chapter 11, verses 54, it says Jesus no longer walked openly among the Jews and he went there to kind of hunker down. He was starting to just kind of shut this thing down and getting just with his close people. And then he makes his way to Bethany to celebrate. I mean, Lazarus is fresh out of the grave, right? So everybody's like, yay, Lazarus. So when he says he's reclining at the table, he is like in a place of honor. And when you think about these tables, and this will come into effect when we talk about the washing of the feet, they're not sitting at chairs and stuff. They're like on, there's probably cushions maybe, but they're sitting on the ground. So there's these low tables and their feet are probably extended out underneath the table. So that's the scene. So there they are at this table. When does it happen? It's probably the Saturday before the Passover feast. And if you remember, where does everybody go when these big feasts happen? What city are they heading toward? Jerusalem. Okay? That's where big stuff's going to happen here in another couple days. But they're making their way. So all these folks are headed to Passover feast. And now everybody, remember that last big giant miracle, Lazarus coming out of the grave? Everybody knows. And so everybody's hanging out in Jerusalem looking for Jesus. Where is he? Where is he? Where is he? Okay? And remember, in just a little bit, he's going to make his, his entry into the city on a, just a little donkey, isn't he? But right now, these people are making their way to Jerusalem. He's not there yet. He's in Bethany hanging out with his people. Okay? Something that's important to, to note, this whole thing was also recorded in Matthew and Mark. Okay? Now, there is another account of a woman anointing Jesus in Luke, and there is some discrepancy. Some people um, think that it's all the same account. I kind of tend to lean toward the, that the Luke thing was a separate account because it's in a different city, and it's at a different guy's house, and the timeline's a little different. So for the sake of, of what we're doing today, we're going we're gonna to recognize that Matthew and Mark talk about the same event. And this is what's interesting. This is an aside. Did you notice Matthew and Mark don't say anything about her, about her anointing his feet? They just talk about his head. And I thought that was interesting because remember, John was written when? Later, right? So John knew the accounts that had been recorded, and he felt like it was an important detail that we needed to understand that she had let her hair down, and she had anointed his feet with her hair. I mean, it seems important to me because it's pretty weird, right? Well... Where? They were probably at uh, Simon the leper's house. And they call him Simon the leper to distinguish who he was. There's a lot of Simons, in case you haven't noticed. Simon is a name that's over and over. We hear it over and over. Um, He probably wasn't a leper anymore because I'm thinking they might not have had dinner at his house. But that's just me. I'm just guessing. Maybe Jesus healed him. We don't know for sure. Who was there? Lazarus, Martha, Mary. Um, But the cool thing is, and if you ever read much about those three, you know, we talked a couple weeks ago how they were his people. Like they were his probably his closest friends outside of his his disciples, is that Mary was so devoted, wasn't she? Like she was the one. Remember, what did Mary always go do? Sit at Jesus' feet while Martha's in there making beans, right? She'd sit at his feet. And so Mary, in this moment, is about to upend every taboo of her culture in this event. And here's the thing. You saw that everybody got all weird about it. Well, in John, we only see that Judas speaks out, but apparently what we can infer from that and from the other accounts is that everybody in the room was uncomfortable with it. Like even the disciples, they were like, this is, mm -mm, I don't know what this is, but this is weird. There's two reasons why people were, were losing it. There's two reasons why they were upset about this. One, it was what she did. What she did. She broke out. Okay, gosh. 
The oil that she used was a year's wages. A year. And so, yeah, I can see how even the people with the, even the non-Judases that were in the room that were very well-meaning and had all these great ideas for how funds could be used to help the poor and further the ministry probably saw that and went, oh, we could have sold that and done so much good. It was, it was crazy what she did. Jesus himself was the one to say, you guys back off because what you don't know, I know. And what's coming is that someone is going to need to anoint my body because I'm going to die. And they didn't see it. And he's foreshadowing this thing, and he even speaks of it. And in the Mark version, he receives her love this way. He says in Mark 14, 6 through 9, and I like this detail. Um, he says, but Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could do. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Is that true? Yeah. We still are here, 2018, Flower Mound, Texas, talking about what she has done. You notice in that passage, he says, she has done, she has done what she has done. You know, Mary didn't just talk about love and just sit at Jesus' feet and listen. She did. She did. And, and I hear that and I think, gosh, those people in the room, like, how dare they? How dare they be mad because of what she did? And yet, we do it all the time. I do it all the time. I, I see acts of great love and I think, well, that could have been done differently and done better. What she does is she shows, by, by doing what she did, she shows what she really loves, right? Well, the two things. One, they didn't like what she did and then they didn't like how she did it. Okay, so we get the detail that she let her hair down and I was kind of like, okay, whatever. That had such cultural significance. Women didn't do that. And so in my mind, I'm hearing that, and that's really, we just get that one little sentence, don't we? That she let her hair down, and she got down on the ground, and she washed, anointed his feet with her hair. I don't even know what that looked like, but all I can imagine was that she was just so overwhelmed with love and overwhelmed with love for him, for him being there, for his ministry, for what she has seen in her own way, in her own eyes, that she just said, I don't even care anymore. This is how much I love. And so people, they didn't like that. They didn't like how she did that. Jewish women did not stoop like a slave or a servant, and Jewish women certainly did not let their hair down. It's interesting because they go on in the account, and we hear um, that Judas like, makes this remark you know, about, oh my gosh, we could have used this money and done all these cool things. Well, just know this, Judas's heart was not about people and not about love. In this moment, we even see earlier that he has already been taken over. He is already headed down a path that there's no turning back from. He's a deceiver and he's a liar and he's in the presence of the Lord. And what's cool about it is Jesus knows. We hear this over and over, right? We know he knows. But what does he do? He loves him anyway. Mary stoops down to love Jesus. Jesus receives her love in a way that everybody in that room was probably like, this is getting weird. Bob Goff is an author, and I don't know if you've, if you've ever read his, his book, Love Does. If you haven't, you should. 
Um, but he's an attorney, and he shares. It's always interesting. I always I love, I remember this all the time, because he says when he has um, one of his clients that's going to have to be deposed or have to testify or something, he tells them this. He says, I have one rule, aside from being honest, but when you sit, you sit with your hands under that table, and I want you to sit palms up. And they're like, I don't even understand what that means. Like, that just sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? And his point is, no, the reason why is because when our hands are down or when our fists are clenched, it's a lot easier to be dishonest, and it's a lot easier to not be um, truthful and not be transparent. And, And I imagine Jesus that way, and that's what Bob Goff says, and I quote his book. He says this, palms up means that you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to gain or lose. You are strong enough to be vulnerable even with your enemies. Even when you've been tremendously wronged, Jesus was palms up to the very end. He is looking eye to eye to the guy in the room that's going to take him and send him and sell him off and take him to the cross. And he is still palms up receiving love. And he's doing it. Why? So that we can understand that that's part of how you love. He's modeling for us. This is what you do. You receive love. Mary selflessly stooped to love. Jesus received this extravagant love with his palms up. What a picture, right? Get over, when I get over the weirdness of what that room must have been like, then I see that there's a Jesus that is sitting there looking at her saying, yeah. Well, we move on to chapter 13, and I wish I could cover a lot of the things like the way he, he enters into the city and, and people crying. What were they crying? Hosanna, like, whoa, it's so amazing, right? We could spend days talking about it. But I want to get to chapter 13, to Jesus washing the feet of his disciples because it, talk about love. Let me lay the scene for you. I know you read about it and I know you talked about it, but maybe I can fill in a couple holes for you, some details. Um, It's 13 verses 1 through a whole bunch of them, 30. Um, Now, remember, I said this a minute ago, but I want to reiterate this. Now, chapters 1 through 12 of John, he's focusing, um, there's a focus on the rejection of Jesus. He's very public. He's out there, right? But now, 13 through 17, from where we start here to where we're going to finish, we're going to see that he centers on private preparation and farewell to his closest followers. It's going to be real intimate over the next week or so. When, when did this happen? Well, it tell, he tells us in um, the very first um, verse, it says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Verse 2, during supper. And so let me pause right there. What we know when we do the timeline and we compare these accounts, we know this. We know that he is one day from the cross. He is, it's probably Thursday night after sunset, and tomorrow everything changes. And so he's got his guys. Now, where are they? They're now in Jerusalem, okay? So remember the, after we looked at, um, I don't, when he entered, let's see, it was verse, I mean, chapter 12, verses 12 and following is where he enters Jerusalem. So now he's there. And so he's in this upper room. Um, one of our leaders, so cool, she had this great vision. I was like, what is an upper room? I mean, besides, you know, like the velvet painting that you see on the wall all the time and everything. What, what is that? Well, she, she phrased it like this. I thought this was brilliant, very biblical, very theologically sound. She said, it was a garage apartment. Yeah, okay. I think that's about right. 
what I read, um, the whole upper room idea is basically it's um, somebody probably owned property or a building or a home and they had this one separate room that was essentially kind of like a garage apartment and it was a room that would be set apart. It'd be a place where they could meet and they wouldn't be interrupted and it wouldn't be big so there wouldn't be like tons of folks in there with them. Um, but it would be a place where they could meet and come together, the 12. Um, so there they were in the garage apartment. Now remember, he's in Jerusalem now and he rode in on the donkey, right? And that was a prophecy fulfilled in Zechariah. So, wow, all of a sudden there's this tingly undercurrent of, okay, this, this really is, things are happening. So I can't imagine what the energy was like in that room. Um, who was there? Jesus and his 12. We know that for sure. It's pro- that's probably it. If there were anybody else there, we don't hear about them. But what's interesting is what, what happened. And if you take all the accounts and you merge them into one and you get all the details, you kind of can piece together some things. But I, I want to share with you so that you can imagine um, what this looked like. Now, whenever a feast like this happened, there'd be a couple of guys that their job was to prepare. Okay? What we know, based on the other accounts, not John, is that Peter and John were sent ahead to prepare. Okay, and what preparing for this kind of thing means is that they would go to the temple, they would buy the lamb that was going to be slaughtered and prepared, and then they would bring it to the garage apartment, right? And then um, they would get bread and wine and all the ingredients. They were responsible to make sure that there was a basin and water and towels that were there because it was customary that there would be servants that would um, wash the feet of the people who arrived. It was kind of like this traditional thing that happened when you walked in. Okay? It, was just, it just happened, always, but it was always servants. And so their job was to make sure there were servants there that were ready to do that. It was very common, especially during Passover. So they got all the stuff. Everything's all ready to go. And then we find ourselves into the scene, and it, and it seems like right in the middle of the meal, Jesus gets up. Now remember, when I say get up, they're on the ground, right? Essentially, they're sitting down on those cushions. So getting up is a thing. Like, they're all going to notice. It's not like... You know, he was over at the buffet, and he got up in the middle of it. And what's so crazy? This is what's so crazy. In the Luke version, Luke chapter 22, verse 24, you know what had just happened before he gets up? This makes my heart beat fast. You know what had just happened? There was a conversation. And I find it hilarious, first of all, that John doesn't include it, because he was one of the dudes making the conversation. It was a dispute that arose among them, and this is what it was about. Who's going to be regarded as the greatest? Do you remember that? Who's going to be regarded as the greatest? Even within the sight of the cross, even with all of the things that he's told them and the mood and the feel, I can't even imagine what it must have felt like in that room. They are arguing about who's going to have the biggest crown. And then he gets up in the middle of the meal, which would have been so weird. And I wonder this. This is what I wonder. Did they stop talking? Did they stop arguing? Did anybody notice that he got up? Did anybody notice that their feet had not been washed properly? Did anybody ask to do it? Did anybody try to take the towel? I mean, it says there, right, that he starts, he starts preparing. He takes the towel and he ties it around his waist and it's kind of like an apron. And now we know something's going on. He takes the basin. He gets everything. Like in the middle of that, we don't see anybody going, hold on, hold on, wait, 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 let me do it. Do we? That's nasty. One of our leaders in the evening group, um, she lived in, um, I can't even remember now, but she lived somewhere in that region, and, and she, just not too long ago, not like in the Bible days, because that'd be weird, really old. But she said, just even recently, she goes, man, those roads are nasty. 
She's like, there are animals everywhere. And when there are animals everywhere, you know what comes with animals? Anyone? Anybody have a puppy? Yeah. <laughs> Things. Things that you step in. And they didn't have, you know, sketchers. They had sandals. And remember, too, they, uh, they had just come from Bethany. So it was a long trip. And so whenever people did arrive for these big feasts, obviously they're trekking across lots of nasty to get there. Obviously their feet need to be washed. So when we talk about feet being washed, we're, we're not talking about feet that were securely um, put in shoes and have been nicely showered and pedicured. We're talking about the lowest, the lowest job you can do would be cleaning feet. Well, in verses 5 through 8, this is what blows my mind. Let me read it to us just to kind of get our heads right. Verse 5. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, what, am I, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered him. If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. You know, we get mad at Peter, don't we? But let me ask you a question. This is funny. And Lindsay made a joke about washing feet. We talked about it. It was a thing we talked about. And we're like, no, that will freak everyone out. If I came at you right now with a basin, I was like, get your shoes off. You'd be like, no, wouldn't you? Well, not you. We are Peter. He didn't say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. He said, no way. Don't you dare, didn't he? What is that? I mean, just in chapter 12, we just learned how Jesus palms up is accepting this love, this crazy love from Mary that seemed illogical. And yet Peter, who lives and walks and believes, doesn't even accept what Jesus is doing. Um, interestingly, why I start thinking like, okay, are we Peter? Yeah, we're Peter. I don't know about you. Maybe you're not Peter, but I am Peter. Because I put myself in that same position, I'd be doing, you know what I would have done? I would have done the, the convenient, excuse myself to the bathroom, I'd be like, you know what, I'm going to, I'll be back once you're finished doing this. Because how vulnerable and how, how, how difficult would it be to watch your Savior pin down and wash your feet? You know where your feet have been. Why is it more difficult for us to allow ourselves to be loved than to actually give love? I can make more sense out of being the one washing feet than being the one to have my feet washed. What about you? We, we do, for the most part, it's easier for us to give than to receive. The answer is simple. A lot of us are control freaks. When I serve others, I'm in control. When I serve you and I love you, I decide. I get to choose how I do it, when I do it, and what it looks like. Allowing ourselves to receive love means this. It means we have to allow ourselves to be vulnerable. It has, we have to allow ourselves to be exposed to risk rejection. We allow ourselves to uh, admit that we need and that we are insufficient and that we are incomplete. All of a sudden, sitting there and letting your Savior bend down on the floor and wash your feet, that's what Peter's overwhelmed with. And he doesn't want to go there. Peter was real eager to prove his love to Christ, wasn't he? But he ultimately would fail. He would deny Jesus in the threat of danger. Again, it's easy for us to get mad at Peter until we're the ones facing that threat. In the face of Christ's love for him, as he demonstrated washing the feet, 
12 sets of nasty feet. He felt overwhelmed with the urge to pull back, and instead of allowing him to let the love of Jesus flow over him, Peter, we see, um, he's afraid. That's what we do, right? We're afraid. We're, we're cowards, and we don't want to be beholden to other people. We don't want um, to turn our lives upside down for God because that is that I, I want to be in control. Did you ever think of receiving love like that? Why is it so hard? Well, Jesus wants us to understand this is not just about giving. It's also about receiving. And he goes on in um, verses 9 through 15, and we see that he's talking um, about Peter saying, well, okay, how about this? Time out. You can wash my hands and my head. And Jesus is like, yeah, but we don't have to do that. Something's interesting just for you to note. At this time, it was a custom that before people entered a feast, they would bathe themselves. So they would be pretty clean except for the feet. Because that's how they got there. And so essentially he's saying the washing of the feet is the ceremony that preceded entry into the house. So consider this. The feet washing is the entrance into the presence of God. It's the entrance into the house. Entrance into the supper. And so when Jesus is washing their feet, it's more than just dirty. It, it matters on a deep, deep spiritual level. Twelve sets of feet. Now, twelve sets of feet... However, in verse 11, we see him make the, make the point about Judas, who we know later is going to deceive him. And it says, not all of you are clean. However, we never, ever have any proof that says he didn't wash Judas' feet. If you know somebody is going to kill you, and you kneel on the ground and you wash their feet, it can only be God, Right? I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I, I mean, we don't have a ton of enemies, I would guess. Knowing, I mean, you guys look so pretty and sweet. I'm sure you have no enemies. But there's a couple people in my world that it's, it's hard for me to be in a room with, let alone kneel down and wash their feet. And here Jesus is doing it to the enemy number one who's going to sell him up the river. That kind of blows my mind. In, in verses 21 through 30, we go on. And I'm going to read this out loud because this is kind of how this little scene ends. And I want you to, want you to hang on to something here as we, um, as we see how this scene ends. Now, by now, Jesus has, has gotten up. He's finished. He's cleaned everybody up. And he's gotten up and he's put himself back together. And he's sitting back at the table. I bet the room was quiet. What did that even mean? And Jesus goes on. And after he had the conversation about... Um, uh, let, me, let me back up just a little bit. You know, he, you saw that part where he said the one that he loves asks who's going to be the one that's going to betray you. Just know this. As I read that, I'm like, okay, wait, does everybody know now? Because then Judas dipped the bread, remember? And then he took off. Okay, know this. When he was talking to John about that, he, it wasn't like a big public announcement. And remember, you got 12, 13 people in that room. There's a lot of people. It's a small room. There's, it's chaos. We're talking, whatever. So it's not like everybody knew. They thought Judas got up and left to go take care of, of treasurer things because he's the treasurer for the, for the posse, okay? So they don't necessarily know that he's the one. Does that make sense? Okay, so verse 21, let's move on to that. It says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And he testified, truly, truly. What does that even mean when he says things twice? Listen up. Yes, truly, truly. I say to you, one of you will betray me. And then he goes, oh, yeah, okay, so I kind of got ahead of myself. Um, well, I'll go ahead and read it. One of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. 
One of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table. That's John. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. That's when he referred back to, it's going to be the guy that dips the bread. I'm going to move down to verse 27. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan had entered him. That's Judas. Remember, he's already, he's already started down that road. He was not innocent. He was not innocent. Verse 28. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. And some thought, this is verse 29, that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what you need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So see, they thought he was just going to do his job. But verse 30 is where it all came together for me. Um, And I never noticed this before until this time. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. Judas went out. So he's gone. And this sentence is what blew my mind. And then it was night. And it was night. And I read that and I thought, okay, this may be me reaching. Okay? And so I'm going to say that in advance. It may be me reaching. But this is what I felt like I needed to remember. And it was night. And in John 12, 46, Jesus says this, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. And in Romans 5, 8, we learn that Jesus loves us at our darkest moments. Judas leaves, and it's night. It's the darkest moment, and Jesus never stops loving him. He loves with a servant love. Jesus shows us this upside-down dimension of the gospel, doesn't he? Because if it was me that I was supposed to love that crook... Oh, it wouldn't have looked the same, would it? Because I'm not good at that. I am not good at servant love. The king of glory puts on an apron and stoops down in front of sinful, broken, filthy people and washes their feet. And the thing is, it's cool about that. You know, we sit here and you hear me saying, okay, we're learning how to love from Jesus. We're learning to receive. We're learning to serve and stoop. But here's what's cool. He never, ever, 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 and this is, you can hold me to this. We are never asked to do something that Jesus himself did not do. It's not like he came to this earth and said, I'm going to sit over here on this throne and you people are going to go do what I tell you. He doesn't just tell us. He shows us, doesn't he? That's the kind of savior I want to follow. Well, moving on into the, um, the next section of chapter 13, verses 31 through 34, we see this idea of a new commandment, which felt really weird to me because I'm like, this doesn't seem too new. I don't know. I'm not a big Bible scholar. I know a lot of song lyrics from like circa 1982. I have that memorized. But, but Bible stuff, I'm, you know, I got to go back and look. So maybe I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I've heard it before, Right? Well, you probably do. I mean, I'm sure you all have Leviticus memorized. Um, I don't, but in Leviticus 19.18, that's way on the left side of your book. That's way early on, way before Jesus was on the scene in the Old Testament. The command went something like this, love your neighbor as yourself. So this idea of love is not new. But Jesus turns it upside down for them, and it becomes a new command. And we're going to look at how and why. Let me read verses 31 through 34 for you. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. I'm going to pause. When he had gone out, that's when Judas had gone out. When he says the word now, he's saying now. The final betrayal is set in motion right now in this moment. Don't miss. Now matters. It's in this moment. He's saying, 
that this final betrayal is happening. Verse 32, if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, that term, you can know this, it only appears in the Bible in the New Testament two times, here and in the first letter of John. And it's John sharing this beautiful picture of Jesus. He didn't call his posse little children very often, but in this moment, it's almost like he's like, guys, I love you so much, will you listen? It's almost like he is talking to these little children that just don't know, right? So he refers to them, little children, yet a little while, I'm with you, and you will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, and this is what we're going to talk about. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, and you also are to love one another. By this, all the people will know that you are my disciples. And if you have love for one another, one another, one another, one another. It's a new object. In the other um, version we hear, you love your neighbor as yourself. Here, we're learning something new. What's interesting, too, is he calls this, verse 34, a commandment. It is not a suggestion. It is not a precious little, hey, you should consider this. Pray about it. Get back to me. No, it's a commandment. And I, and I think about that, and I'm like, ah, I think I'm better at clinging to the promises than I am to clinging to the commandments. Jesus says, and he's talking to you. He's talking to me. This is not just optional. This is a commandment. Something else to note here. It's a new command because of two reasons. One, because the object has changed. I mentioned the, the term one another one another, it's interesting when he's talking about this here. Now, don't be confused because remember, he's just got the 12 in the, in the garage apartment, right? Just the 12 are in there. But what he's telling them is you are to love each other, other believers. He doesn't mean the world at large in this statement. That doesn't mean we aren't to go love the world at large. That is absolutely what we are to do. But what he's saying is right now in this moment, you guys, you have to love each other. Because you know why? Because you as believers, if you don't love each other, then the world sees it and says, I don't want any part of that. That is hypocritical and it's a disaster. And so when we sit here in Flyer Mound, Texas, we are being commanded to love each other. Are there people in the church, the Big C Church? And when I say Big C Church, I mean there's two ways we use the word church. If I say I go to church on Sunday and I come to Rock Point Church, it's a building. Okay, it's a group of people that come to this building. But when I say the Big C Church, that's the, the Christian believers at large. Okay, and sometimes in the Bible and sometimes um, pastors will say that. The, the, the church, and they're not talking about Rock Point, okay? But here's my question. When he's commanding us to love one another, he's commanding us to love the big C church. He's commanding us to love Joe, who goes to a different church, who believes different things than I do about, about, about some teaching. He's talking to me about going to, to love those guys over there that are difficult, that are spouting off on Facebook because we don't believe the same things politically or socially. I'm to love them yeah, you're not just supposed to love the person that looks like you and thinks like you and talks like you. That's not what Jesus says. He commands us to love one another. Question, 12 people in that room, do you think they all thought the same way? Do you think they all believed exactly the same thing about the way the world works and what was best? I do not think they do. And I don't think he says, you know what, just love the people that think like you. And then if people don't think like you, then you just beat them over the head until they do think like you. And then you can love them. No, it's unconditional. Love one another because the world is watching. 
It's a new commandment because the object has changed. I, uh, I was thinking through this, and I'm like, you know what this means to me? It means get your house in order, believers. And then I thought, oh, that's this all sweet little southern saying. I've always heard my grandma say, get your house in order. Well, I go back and look, and sure enough, again, I have too many 80s lyrics in my head. That's like from the Bible, guys. Who knew? Some of you probably did actually know. <laughs> in 2 Kings, it says, get your house in order. And what that means is you need to get your world right. A good friend of mine who was a few years ahead of me in parenting, when I was early on and my kids were little and they were driving me crazy and all I wanted to do was get out and sign up for everything where there was childcare, amen, or call grandmas. Uh, and I remember I was so exhausted and overwhelmed with all the service and all the wonderful things I was doing in the name of God. And she said to me, you know, your mission field is your, no I mean, your home is your number one mission field. And if you're not getting it right in your house, then there's no way that you can serve the way Jesus wants you to serve. And I'm like, oh, absolutely, I totally can. Have you seen how awesome I am over here? And then I come home and I got nothing left for my husband and I got nothing left for my kids. And that's what I think about when I see this. I see that as we as believers have to get our house in order. It's easier sometimes for me to go love people that I feel like need to come to Jesus, but it's hard for me to love some of the people that I'm supposedly shoulder to shoulder working with within the church, right? What does that tell the world? It's new commandment because he's telling them to love one another, believers. It's secondly, it's also a new commandment because of the measure he gives. He's now saying what? In verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. And here's the measurement. Just as I have loved you, now we're in trouble. <laughs> just as I have loved you. They just saw him on the ground cleaning their feet. And it wasn't because he, he desired affection. It was because he loved them so deeply that it didn't matter to him, that he would do anything for them. It was because he loved them so much he would receive love from them unconditionally. And he tells us that we're supposed to love that way. Jesus' love for us was sacrificial. He ends up dying for us. It was um, selfless. He wasn't concerned about people-pleasing or other people's opinions. It was a servant love because he stoops down on the ground when no one else will do it. It was unconditional. It wasn't about needs or faults or shortcomings or comfort. It was only about God's will. It's a new commandment, and it's not a suggestion. Well, I'm going to close this way. Um, I was thinking through, how do we love like Jesus? Well, we, we stoop, right, and we receive. And I thought of a couple practical ways that... Um, that I feel like, and again, he, you know, maybe this isn't for you and I'm not talking to you, so you can just like take a little nap for a minute. But um, I feel like this is what he's telling me, Chris, who won't stoop, Chris, who won't sit palms up when people love her and won't take help and receive love. I felt like I needed to hear this. And so um, there's, there's the two ways. We stoop to love and we, we are to love the unlovable, the indifferent, the filthy, the ones who look different, speak different, and live different. We're to love the ones that disagree with us, the ones that um, actually put us on the cross. We're to love the ones that are undeserving. We're to love the liars. And we're to love the one another's, those who are also believers. Jesus did all that. Five things that we can do practically. One, we can be present with people, not just in the presence of people. 
you know, I, I am the worst at this because I feel like I have, my time is, you know, very important. It's not important. <laughs> I, I get too protective sometimes because I think that every encounter that God's going to call me to is going to be this two-hour long thing and I'm going to be sucked dry. But you know what? Sometimes, sometimes these encounters that God gives us, these opportunities to love people, to be present with people, is 30 seconds. Sometimes it's 30 seconds of I see you, I love you, that maybe that's it. Be present and don't just be in a room with somebody, but really, really, really be present with someone. The second thing is, um, and this is hard, it's hard for non-believers, it's hard for believers. We are to forgive, not just relive What do we do when we forgive? This is what's crazy. If I'm going to love well and I'm going to love like Jesus, then I'm going to forgive. And that doesn't mean you're going to sacrifice yourself at the altar of unhealthy relationships. I don't think that Jesus would tell us to do that. I also want us to understand, which it took me years to learn, forgiveness is not always reconciliation. Amen? A lot of times forgiveness, nothing ever goes back to the way it used to be, and that's okay. But this is what I've learned about forgiveness is when we seek forgiveness through God, not through the person, something magic happens that we get free. If I'm only seeking forgiveness, if you'll actually say, okay, Chris, I actually forgive you now. If I'm only looking for that from you and I'm not actually talking to God about it, then that's conditional, isn't it? And it's subjective. And then what happens is I relive it over and over. I'll be like, yeah, I totally forgave her. But oh my gosh, Kathy, you should hear it. She was so wrong. And I was so right. I mean, everybody on Facebook said it was right. I was right. We got to forgive. We got to get with our father and say, I forgive her. And Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for whatever I have done. Is there a better way to love? Third thing is this. We need to, and this is, again, may not be you. But I feel like God's telling me this. Chris, do more listening and less advising. You know, I do believe this. I believe that sometimes we love best by being quiet. Sometimes the best thing we can do is to not tell them, oh, I know how you feel. Because you know what? You don't know how they feel. I've said it before too. Someone goes through something terribly tragic and painful and I'm like, oh, I know how you feel. And and I realize now on the other side of some tragedy, I do not know how they feel. But you know what I do know? I know that I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm here Can I pray with you? I don't even know what to pray. Can we just be quiet together and cry? I don't know. But don't feel like you got to fix stuff. Don't feel like you got to advise. Just listen, because sometimes for me, some of the greatest ways that I've received love in a Christ-like way was somebody who just was quiet and listened and let me just go. Number four, don't just invite people, welcome people. I, uh, I feel like that was when I see Jesus and the way he loved, you know, he always stopped, didn't he? And he always went to people. And it wasn't like they felt like they were just this, this passerby, right? They felt like in that moment they were welcomed into this moment with him. May have only been a 30-second encounter with Jesus. He didn't heal everybody, people. And he didn't go to coffee or lunch with everybody, guys. But he did welcome and number five, um, love by doing. Love by doing. Uh, I think about, you know, we, we, how about instead of asking, how can I help, we just help. 
I mean, I don't think Mary probably said, hey, um, everybody, is it cool if I like break open this one-year wage and like pour it on his feet? I'm going to undo my hair. Is everybody good? Are we good? Is everybody good? No, she just did it. Didn't she? She just did it. Don't ask, how can I help? Just help. Don't ask, what will they think? Just pour the oil on the feet. Stoop to love. Jesus also received love when it was unpopular, uncomfortable, and humbling. We're to see how he did that, and we are to do it like he did it. The first thing I thought about was this, and Lindsay and I talked about this right before. How about more thank yous and fewer, um, no, 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 I'm fine. How about um, more often, yes, I need, I need help. I'll take the help. And fewer, oh, no, I'm sorry. Don't bother yourself with that. I'm fine. I don't need that. Because you know what? Sometimes, sometimes it isn't about you, Chris. Sometimes it's about the other person who's on the ground trying to wash your feet. And you're Peter going, no way, man. More thank yous. And the second is, um, how about more stopping and seeing and less um, being too busy or hiding or isolating? We are the big C church. And we don't just love, we need to receive love. We need it. I think too often we, we decide, well, we know Jesus, so everything's okay. Well, I got news for you. When you know Jesus, everything is okay as far as your eternal life and your salvation and your purpose and your meaning. But everything in this world, this broken world under the sun, before we get to be face-to-face with him, is not okay. It's not. It's not fine. We need to stoop to love. We need to receive love. Chapter 13, verse 30, and it was night. Chapter 12, verse 46, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. It is night. It's night right now. How are you going to approach the love of Jesus? Will you receive it? Will you stoop to share it? Because this whole thing that unfolded was for us. Let me pray. Father God, we, uh, it's hard. This new commandment is not easy, and you know that. Um, but with you, we're able to love. We're able to stoop. We're able to receive. We're able to do things, God, where we look back and go, man, I could not have been me. That had to be God. Lord, show us those moments this week. God, will you show us those places where we need to stoop? Will you show us those places where we need to receive? The world at large is watching, and what are we showing them? Lord, um, forgive us when we define you by the people that follow you. Forgive us when we exclude those who are unlovable. Forgive us when we don't accept your love. Lord, um, we just want to be better. We want to do it well. Lord, show us how to be Jesus We thank you so much that you sent your son to come and live and show us, not just tell us. In Jesus' name, amen.